0: chapter 28 of citadel of fear by gertrude barrows bennett this librivox recording is in the public domain citadel of fear chapter 28 rival claimants colin o'hara had a vision he thought that again he lay stretched on the workroom floor though his eyes were closed he thought that the lids grew transparent and by this phenomenon a great clarity of sight came upon him, so that all about him was thrice clear, and without stirring a muscle he could see every part of his surroundings. He and Marco lay side by side, very stiff and straight. This seemed just, though unpleasant. When Kennedy came with Genghis Khan to roll and drag him away, had he been able to speak he would have protested. They had no sense of what was fitting or perhaps they were ignorant of who had slain the poor weakling. With his one good arm, Kahn was trying to lift him now. They had dragged him to the golden font, and he noted, with no particular interest, that the stained apron no longer draped the third cougar's head. Then he perceived that Kennedy was wearing it, and was also trying to fit a glove, yellow and shining a soft flexible gold, over his right hand but the talent white paw that had been his left retained no skill. At last he motioned the great ape to aid him, and Kahn did. The ape's hand was clever enough, for all the fur on the back of it. Did that prove the created beast its creator's superior? Cullen pondered this deeply, but ere he could reach a satisfactory conclusion they were at him again. Kennedy began untying the knots of his bonds, but left off suddenly. No, Muttered he. To be on the safe side I shall have to anesthetize before stripping him. The faint may be only a sham. Let him stay tied for a while." This amused Cullen, who knew himself to be dead. How cautious the little man was! Now Kahn was lifting at him once more. This time the master helped, and though his strength was comparatively feeble, the two of them managed to raise Cullen to the font's level. Tumbled over the edge, he subsided into the font and lay there uncomfortably. The thing wasn't long enough. His neck was doubled at a painful angle. Marco's body now would have fitted much better. If they must have a corpse to the font, why couldn't they have chosen Marco's? Then, for though his face was below the basin's edge, he could see as well as ever what went on, he perceived that Kennedy was taking some jars some boxes and a small flask from the depths of those golden vessels by the wall. He came presently and set them out on a kind of shelf that extended from the font. The flask he took in his hand, and it was a thing of gold and great value, and carved all over with writhing, lizard-like forms. The stopper of it, which was glass or crystal, fitted tightly, and Kennedy had some trouble in removing it. But it came out at last. He sniffed as if testing the freshness of the stuff it contained, smiled in unpleasant satisfaction, replaced the stopper and set it down again. Then he stooped, and from the floor behind the font lifted a more commonplace receptacle, a large glass bottle, half filled with some kind of colourless fluid. After that there were two or three things done, but exactly what they were Cullen was not sure because the strange sight that had come on him blurred for a time and was all confused, shadowy and not to be remembered. Something was put over his face, he thought, and after a time taken away again. A sickish sweet odour oppressed him, hands fumbled about his body, and somewhere, very far away, a bell rang constantly. Then, clearer if possible than before, the sight returned. There was Kennedy still, but he had done with the bottle, and now he was for opening one of the small olden jars. As he did it, he looked at Cullen, and behind his beard the thin red lips grew to a smile that was ugly as a toad's without its honesty. Suddenly, with no moment's interim of thought or doubt, Cullen knew the meaning and the end of these preparations. And he knew that he was not dead, but only helpless and that the slit-like, watchful eyes behind those round glasses were no longer Kennedy's, but the eyes of Nakhaki Otel, maker of goblins. With that, he who had been Archer Kennedy faded to nothing, and in his place stood the naked evil that had squatted on the dais. Smiling, it leaned to pass treacherous, caressing fingers across the victim's face. Cullen's spirit shivered but all that was great in him rose to fierce rebellion. Never, never! What claim had that dark vileness upon him? But he could not even speak to protest, for his body slept. Then somewhere a low clear voice was sounding. "'Wait!' it said softly. Otto, you who were once my brother, wait! Lest you break the law that must not be broken and destroy yourself with the world!' Cullen had thought the voice that of his dusk lady, but surely the demon had never been a brother of hers. His attention, which had been fixed on what hung over him, widened. The speaker, he discovered, was a tall youth, very slender, who stood before the font facing Nakhakiotl across Cullen's body. In one hand he grasped a staff, its serpent head curving out of a circlet of quail feathers, of the speckled quail-feathers was his cloak, and the round shield he bore on his left arm was rimmed with them. His face was very bright and beautiful—a kindly face, too, with patient, smiling lips. But in the eyes a spirit lurked that made less incongruous the gaping, intolerant jaws of the serpent crest above it. And every plume about him flickered, wavering, as if in some draught that blew on him alone, for the air in the place was still. Looking beyond him, Cullen perceived that the floored space beneath the shaft had filled with thronging people. Very strange folk they were, and at the same time extraordinarily familiar. Like old friends in masquerader's robes, he knew each one, and recalled the names of them in different lands. There was him whose flowing robes were woven of the beaded gray rain. White foam was his beard, and his eyes were like blue ice caverns. Tlaloc was he. Neptune, and Manannan son of that Great One who dwells forever invisible in the sleeve Fuad. But his robes were not all grey. At one side they were struck through to rainbow hues by another who stood behind him. That was Luch, the Shining One, Tonathiu, the Fiery One, Amen ra of the Egyptians, Apollo of the Greeks. Mestli with his paler fire was there. Santeotl, who is Ceres and also Dana, mother of gods, Lazanan with their flasks of healing, and Tezat Zoncatl, merry of face and wreathed like Bacchus. They and many others of friendly appearance stood behind their spokesman, but a demon leered across Cullen's body and the mouth of him was wide and cruel. "'Shall I wait?' said Nakhakiotl. "'Yes, for the man is mine.' But yesterday he was claimed for me in Talapalan. But yesterday he was claimed for me also, and—'But yesterday Talapalan fell. Did you save your servants?' Talapalan's time was ended, and I might not save them. But death is little. I have fought for you for this man's life because I love him, but slay him now if you will, for my children do not fear death slay him and spare this other deed which is forbidden. Did you forbid it when my white hounds roamed the hills? Your hounds served a sacred use, to guard Telepalan. Moreover, in their making only your power, not your spirit, went into them. Their violence was the clean violence that fights, but not for malice. For the sake of their origin those hounds stood equal with the mighty guardians but the hounds you send forth to-day are fouler than foul. Evil is their service, and their nature an infinite degradation. They are as I wish them. Then degrade beasts only, or such beasts as are human only in form. Claim service of your own, black one, but this is my child. I have followed him through many lands and I know him well. His spirit has flamed to the courage of my breath. I have sung to him on the plains, and lulled him to sleep in the forests. He is one of my clean-hearted children, and you may not corrupt him." "'He has traversed my waters,' muttered a new voice, deep and thunderous as distant breakers. "'In our play we hurled great billows, the lord of the air and I. We hurled them against him, and he was not afraid.' "'I have set my burning mark upon him. Tanathieu spoke, a hissing whisper. I have tested him well, and the fire of my own spirit was not more steadfast than his. Beware of us, O mine enemy! The feathered one's countenance grew bright and fierce even as the glory of Tanathieu. Wildly waved his turbulent plumes, and raising his serpent-staff he shook it like a spear. Beware of us, for our patience is nearly ended! Talapalan fell! but its time was finished. Think not that we will stand idle forever while you destroy our children. The lord of the air guards his own." "'There is a house on a hill,' sneered the demon, that you did not guard." "'You know otherwise. Not against me did you send your emissaries, but against this man, who had been claimed for me, and against his loved one. Knowing that your own claim on him was false—' Not so false now as then," murmured Nakhaki "'I say,' continued the other sternly, "'knowing that you might not corrupt him, you sought the lesser satisfaction of killing. Not against me were your emissaries sent. But was it not my staff, my little broken staff, that sent back the first crawling up a blood-stained stream? Was it not my shield? my little broken shield that kept the second, the glimmering worm, at bay till my child should awaken? For the third no ward of mine was needed. But the fourth—was it not my great voice roaring in the trees that called my child away from a force too strong for him?" "'There is no question,' retorted Nakhaq Yottle, and there was a sneer in his tone that was very like Kennedy's. There could be no question that before you were lord of the air you were a man. So do men boast of their most trifling deeds. The end of it all is, your child, or this that was your child, lies here. What protection do you offer him now, most powerful one?" There came a pause and a silence. The other gods stirred restlessly, as in anger, but Quetzalcoatl's face grew patient again and when he spoke it was in a voice of pleading, gentle as the wind of spring. "'He is not yours. O oh, Otl, once you were called Telpukli, the young, and Tezcatlipoca, shining mirror. You rewarded the just, and for the wrongdoer you had mercy to bestow. Remember your youth, Telpukli, and be merciful!' But the evil god only grinned wider men made me what I am, and for that I hate them. And in all Anahuac there was no mercy among them. In the shrieks of the bloody sacrifice, in the cries of babes murdered upon my altars, in the steam that arose from the unspeakable feast, the mirror of Tezcatlipoca was fouled and dimmed, till Pukli grew black, old, and cruel. I am Nekok Ya'otl, creator of hatreds, and why should I alone of the gods walk unrecognized? To Tlaloc are the rains, floods, clouds, and the billows. All these are his visible servants. Tonathieu is seen of all, and you, lord of the air, you are heard in the forests. In the day of your anger, men know you and bow down in fear. But I, who am stronger than any, must work in secret. My own bondservants deny me. Many centuries I sat patient in Talapalan, working in secret, restricted by the very priests that served me, till there came to our hills a man who was mine from birth. Even he, being man, I must delude, lest in full knowledge of its service the weak vessel be shattered. The Fortress of Fear he has named this, but it has a truer and more secret name—the birthplace of corruption yet he has been an apt tool. Look about you in this, the seat he prepared for me unknowing. Free runs my will to-day and freer shall it run to-morrow. Hate breeds hate, and demon produces demon. How fast have their numbers increased! He is pleased like a child and believes that he shall rule the world. He—that empty, hollow reed through which my will runs, but through all, and despite his coward soul, I have brought this blind slave of mine to dare that for which I waited through the centuries. We have come at last to the utter corruption of man. Here lies the first who shall wear my outer livery, because he has worn it once in his heart, but he is not the last. You have said that in the deed about to be performed I break an immutable law. And I know the law you mean it is the right of the soul, which may not be utterly damned without its own consent. We will test that law. Here, in the person of one man, lies the fate of all mankind, whom I hate. If I succeed, as I shall succeed, then a barrier goes down which has long withheld me from my own. No longer shall I need my blind and foolish tool, who has thought to use my power to further his small and futile ambitions. From that hour I am free indeed. He whose heart I may stamp but once with my seal I shall claim for my own. All, all, body and spirit together, as I claim this man. He has slain at my bidding, your perfect one. Protect him if you can." And when you fail, as you must, for you are weak cowards all, who fear to overstep boundaries and lose your godhead, when you fail think well on this. In the day of the full corruption, and when each hater shall wear the foul outer form of his hatred, who, think you, will be best worshipped of the gods?" There was silence, then the dull distant breakers roared again. "'I am Tlaloc, I bear the ships of man. My rains water his fields. Shall I serve a race of demons? It may not be, Tanathieu went ruddy as if he peered through storm mists. Shall I behold only devils as the world turns under me? It may not be! It may not be! The cry was echoed by the lesser gods till one voice sang clear above the rest, the wind's voice chanting forever round the world. It shall not be! beware of me, O mine enemy! I am the lord of the air, without whom no thing lives. Fire, the pure, is my playfellow, and the whelming flood my friend, but ere ever I was a god, I was a man. Man is my brother, better than all I love him. I am the song of his heart and the strength of his spirit. Courage am I, and hope, and the breath of the wild sweet places it is you who have flung down the challenge, it is I who take it up. Beware of me, O mine enemy, for the day of my patience is ended." The singing checked abruptly, and the god's face, bright and fierce even as Tanathew's, darkened, grew dimmer. About him and all of them the mist closed in, obscuring the clearness of Cullen's vision. Like a premonition of evil the dark mist closed and thickened. When the feathered one spoke again it was in a mere whisper. Cullen could not be sure if he heard with his ears or if the whisper and faint answering voice were equally in the bounds of his own brain. "'Claim your own, Nakakya but not this man. It is forbidden. You cannot do it.' "'Why not, pray? One of the rabbits that went to make the stalking terrors behind you could have been no more in my power than he is.' No!" retorted that dim voice. A rabbit, perhaps. Yourself, by all means. But a real man, no! You flatter him. Again, why not? It won't be allowed, that's all. Were you really the clever devil you think you are, you'd know it!" The conversation had taken on a reminiscent tang that puzzled Colin and at the same time deeply depressed him. He had an idea, too, that just here someone should come in, and—yes, there lurched Genghis Khan down a lane open for him between the now barely visible ranks of the gods. Again he was dragging that unlucky and persistent corpse. Having laid it solemnly before the font, he somersaulted off like a black Catherine wheel to vanish in the mist. Marco, and dead!" said Nekaki Otto. At the words a soft murmurous sound swept the mist, ice-mind mourning through a forest. "'Dead,' continued the demon, "'by the angry hand of my servant!' "'By the just hand of mine,' murmured Cullen's defender. "'No, for he knew no reason to kill. I rose up in his heart suddenly, and lo, he obeyed me." obedience is the test! Why should I not give my servant what form I choose?" Again there was silence. Cullen began to think that to the last question no answer would be vouchsafed, and his depression increased. He would have liked to hear it answered, answered in some definite, satisfactory way, that would have convinced himself as well as the demon. But now the vapors had swallowed all the friendly gods save the lord of the air and his face changed yet more, changed and humanized, till suddenly Cullen knew it for the face of Maxatla, that young captain preferred by the moth-girl on Talapalan Lake. Striding forward he laid a hand on Cullen's shoulder. "'I claim this man,' he cried in a stern sweet voice that was unmistakably human. "'I claim him in the name of the feathered serpent, let any servant of Nakakioto lay hand on him at his peril. And Nakakioto answered, You little fool! Unless you wish to lie in his place, go away! I am tired of having my work broken in on by a silly, superstitious girl. Now, for God's sake, if you know what's good for you, clear out of here and stay out! End of chapter 28